safety mic guy? Here you go, dog. Thank you. My mic packs on. It's it's on. It's ready to go. You got blanks I missed? 1B1. 1B1. Sufficient. God's answer is sufficient. Other blanks that we're missing here. I got all my blanks. Ooh, Deb. To be confident, confident joy, and then it's expression, and it's cause. Yeah, I think I, I went quickly through those blanks. Any other blanks people need? Okay. Then. I'll open it up to questions on this morning's text. And then if you got any questions on the back of itself, we can go there. And if you got any questions in general, we can go there. But first, anything from this morning's passage in Habakkuk? Just one comment. Yeah. Um, I guess a question also. Um, talked about the his hope in the Lord in the backdrop of, of the tough circumstances. Yeah. Uh, something I remember hearing uh, that if you go to a jeweler's, uh, oftentimes they'll put your, your precious jewels, the, the, the cut stones yeah. on a, behind a back, a dark background. Yeah. So that the, so that they seem to, to shine even brighter. Mm. So, the, con the contrast of the, the dark yeah. background with the, the brightness and the reflection in the stones. No, that's that's partly what I meant this morning. I was saying these verses, which are probably the best loved, most well known, th these and two four, the just to live by faith, in their context are so much brighter considering the gloom and the the awful immediate news that Habakkuk's received. And so his commitment to rejoice in God, to hope in God, is, is that much more impressive and stark um, than if this was a book about happy things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and at the end of the happy things, we're going to hope in God. That would make more sense. But this is more, whoa. Um, yeah. Okay. Any other thoughts or questions on any of this? Uh, yes. Oh, go for it, Don. <laughs> if no one's asking questions, take it away. Uh, I know that... Um he makes me tread on my high places. I know that this isn't in the context, but the language reminded me uh, of a possible different application of it, yeah. where um, often the high places were were places in, were mentioned that were places of, of false worship and uh, idolatry. Yeah, and so and and uh, God said that He would tread on those, that He would crush yeah. them, and that. And so the, the um, uh, an alternate again, it's not know, directly in the context, but the, sure. the language talks. Uh, there's several several passages where where that language is used yeah. in Deuteronomy, Micah, and Amos, yeah. um, where it would cause Habakkuk to to abandon to to and even to destroy yeah. the the false things in his own life that he had been trusting in. No, so you're you're making the connection to the places of false just the places of false worship are frequently called the high places, every tall tree, every high hill. 
Um, could it be that Habakkuk is saying the Lord will safely lead him and protect him from falling into false? It's possible. I think the follow-up with the deer is is mm-hmm. we're yeah. still, we yeah. still have more the picture of. I mean, if you have you have you guys ever seen some of those ibex goats on like like they will eat and walk on cliffs that are about this steep? I mean, have you seen that? Mm-hmm. So the the Israelites were in awe of. Good grief. Look at how the Lord God made and upholds these animals on these rocky... I think that's what's in view mostly. Yes, yeah, yes, but no, yes, but fair, yes. you, you could. There could be something in what you're saying as well. Uh-huh. Um, there could be something in what you're saying as well. Okay? Any other... Ye- Timothy. This is a little weird, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, th- this closes out to the choir master, right? Just just curious, like, would this whole book potentially have been performed as a song or, well, or no, as the a song per- is clearly cut off. Three one has the, the, the prescript and the, yeah. the, the postscripts at the end. So, no, there's a clear division. In fact, uh, what's interesting is Habakkuk's format of having something at the beginning and something at the end might in fact, I think help explain some of our confusion with the Psalms in, in um, one of the areas of biblical studies that we have the most confusion over is some of the specific terms used in Psalm titles. Um, Shigianoth is a great one. What, is, what does that mean? Um, and there's, there's others. And uh, Daniel Moore did his uh, THM dissertation developing a theory by a guy named Thurtle from the early 20th century that suggests, hey, perhaps we've wrongly divided the Psalms. For instance, go to Psalm 4. Um, just understand the Hebrew scroll of the Psalms doesn't have Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 2, Psalm 3. It's an unbroken text. And the reader is supposed to divide them. And in fact, there's a couple places where I think the divisions are wrong. Um, I think Psalm 42 and 43 are one psalm. I, I think that's pretty obvious. Well, I would argue that strongly. So one of the things they do in the Psalms is they only make Psalm titles. They don't have any postscripts. And yet Habakkuk makes it clear things can come at the end. So look at Psalm 4. And, for, and, and the Psalm titles are really weird because what verse is the title of Psalm 4? Verse 0? It's before, in my text, it's, it's before verse 1, right? I mean, now the Psalm titles are with the Psalms in the earliest forms that we have. Some a lot of people have suggested oh, the psalm titles are added later. Textually, that's not the case. All of our texts have them, and, and not, I'm not talking about the title that like your English Bible puts on. So for me, verse four, answer me when I call. That's the ESV writer's title for Psalm four. Here it's to the choir master of stringed instruments. So if the pattern in Habakkuk is the right pattern, then really to the choir master of stringed instruments is the end of Psalm three. In the beginning of Psalm four is a Psalm of David. The pattern in Habakkuk is authorship, and the occasion for authorship is at the beginning, and music and liturgical notes are at the end. Instructions for the choir master, instruction for the performers. And so if that's the case, th- this, this theory suggests maybe part of the reason we're having such difficulty with some of these terms in the psalm titles is we're associating with the wrong psalms. Um, the, the line should be drawn. I mean, let me show you one example that I think is pretty cool. Psalm 40... Um, where is it? 45. Okay. So if Thurtle is correct, Thurtle's the guy who proposed this. 
than Psalm 46. To the choir master, a string of the sons of Korah, according to Alma'at, is the end of Psalm 45, and a song is the title of Psalm 46. So, and my little ESV is a footnote next to Alma'ot, Alma'at, which says, probably a musical or liturgical term. That's not saying much. Does anyone know what the Hebrew word this comes from? Alma? Alma? It's, it's, it's young woman, virgin. It's literally just the plural for young woman, virgin. Okay, read Psalm 45, picturing the instructions being for a virgin female choir to sing it. And it fits like a glove. It's a wedding psalm. Praising the bride for her beauty and the husband for his, his um, valor. And it makes perfect sense. And so here's one example where, hey, if we're dividing these things up wrong, maybe out the inclusion of Alma Oat makes better sense with 45. My heart overflows with a... Um, so that would make Psalm 45's title really would just be a love song. Okay? A love song. And this is a royal wedding. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verse to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in the splendor, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with an oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from ivory palaces. Stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies in honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold and ophir. Oh, hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts and the riches. You go on. Does it not seem fitting and appropriate for a virgin choir to be addressing the king and the queen this way? It makes a lot more sense to me. And so, I know that's not exactly where you're going, but, um, but the information we get about the arrangement of the psalms, the suggestion of how these things work, I think makes the psalms fit together a little better. So if I were drawing my lines, I'd put the end of Psalm 45 to the choir master of the Sons of Korah, according to Alma'at, as the conclusion of Psalm 45. So, so if, if Thirtle's theory is correct, if, if what you see at the beginning of the psalms and the ESV and the English translations only put them at the beginning, if it starts with musical notation, it goes with the psalm before. If it starts with authorship or occasion, when David hid from the Philistines, that would go at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to try to apply it that way, um, you, could, you can do that. But no, the, the psalm in, in Habakkuk 3 is clearly set apart as a, as a separate unit. Mm -hmm. we, got, of, we got more. Deb, you can, you're on deck, Deb. Go. Just to follow up with that yeah. a little bit, is there any... Um, so I was a theater major in college and I had a professor yeah. who was a Christian college and he shortly after we left, he started performing a lot of the Old Testament stories almost verbatim out yeah. of the Bible, just kind of an interesting thing. So I kind of missed his big thesis on that or whatever. But the first, the beginning, the rest of Habakkuk, I mean, it reads like a, I mean, like a philosophical dialogue yeah. or like a, 
like yeah. a play? I mean, is there not not to say that it's fictitious in its basis or anything, no, it, but it, is there any? It, I suppose it could be. I mean, it's uh, part of the reason I picked it. It was short. It I think is pretty clear. The dialogue goes back and forth. And you certainly have the poetic description of the well. I guess there's another song. End of chapter two is the taunting song that the nations will sing against Babylon. Um, so that's that's another song that isn't given to the choir master. I mean, so there's a sense in which this is a song not entering into Israel's songbook. Mm-hmm. It's in Israel's scripture, but it's not added to Israel's songbook like this chapter three is to the choir master. Um, no, I think some of these things could lend themselves to dramatic reading. Um, that that certainly could be the case, but I'm not aware of any um, any historical use that way. But it could it could work. It could fit. Um, yeah. Thanks. Deb, needs the microphone. Microphone. Sorry. So what we've been talking about about Psalms. So back to Habakkuk. Yeah. When it says three one. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. Is Shigianoth one of those? Um, that's one of those terms. We're not singings. entirely. That, that's one of those hard. It's used in one other psalm, I believe. Um, and so. Thirtle's, that would be the title of. Yeah. Of da- the Daniel's prayer. theory and Thirtle's theory is that perhaps if we attach them to the right psalms, it might. What you'd want to do is go find all the usages, see what they have in common, start trying to figure out what it's getting at. But no, that's one where I wouldn't venture to guess too much. Um, so it's, some of them seem to suggest like the musical instruments, um, or patach or potentially a tune some have suggested. So uh, one other example of the Psalms, right? Um, let me go back to the Psalms. According to the terebinths of far off doves may well be a melody. You play this song to the dove melody, you know? Um, so those are the types of things that could be just like, we'll see songs like play this, the early church knew about four or five, not the early church, the Reformation church maybe knew a dozen melodies. And so they just keep writing verses to those melodies. So like, no, Martin Luther's a mighty fortress for our God is sung to the melody of a bar song, right? So, you know, and we could do that today. You know, we could do it with Gilligan's Island. Amazing grace, how sweet this sound. Saved a wretch like me. Once was lost, but now I'm blind. Was blind, but now I see. Right. So you'd have a common melody. And so if Israel's got maybe a couple dozen memory melodies, then it could be the notion of a, sing it to this melody or sing it to that or this accompaniment. Those are the types of ideas that are probably right. But you have to talk to Daniel about it. I'll, like I said, I'll post on Facebook Daniel's message from a couple of years ago where he dealt with some of this stuff. So um, yeah, probably. probably. Uh, Shigianoth would probably either be the melody, the reference to... Um, types of instruments being used something like that some sort of some sort of notation in that sense i don't know i don't know oh bridget oh liz you want to go bridget bridget okay i yield my time to the woman in the center um yes i was reading psalm 51 this week so i'm just kind of wondering because that's one that i feel like the description goes perfectly with the psalm but like how you'd split up that. Well, because heading. I think some, I'm not even there, but Psalm 51's authorship and occasion, which oh, means okay. it would be rightly attached to okay. Psalm 51. Let me take a look at it. Um, it's like, isn't it say like when David went into Bathsheba, Uriah's. Okay. So according to Thirtle, to the choir master is part of Psalm 50. Yeah. And then the beginning of 51 would be a Psalm of David when Nathan, the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. 
So that would be Thirtle's suggested division. Then the same way to the choir master occurred at the end of Habakkuk 3, to the choir master is really the end of Psalm 40. So, you know, but authorship and occasion go at the beginning. So that's it. No, I completely agree with you. No, the more I've looked at this, the more it seems to make sense. And, and it's not like it radically changes everything. I think it starts to begin to give us a way forward in understanding some of the more confusing parts of the Psalms. Um, that's, that's, uh, because Psalm titles matter. Before we get to Liz, Jesus' argument with the Sadducees in the temple can't be made unless the Psalm title is accurate. You remember, he, he says to the, to the Sadducees in the temple and the Pharisees, he says in, in Luke, quote Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my feet. If he is David's, if the Lord refers to him as my Lord, then how is he David's son? Right. So the, the whole point is David says, the Lord said to my Lord, we got this third party who's referred to as David's Lord. Who is that? If And it's dependent upon Davidic authorship because Psalm 110, Psalm of David. If it's not Davidic authorship, there's an easy out. Let's just say it's a Psalm of, uh, you know, um, the sons of Korah. Sons of Korah would just be saying the Lord said to my Lord, King David. No problem. No problem of divine messiahship. The Lord said to my Lord. The, the dilemma is when David is referring, who is this person distinct from Yahweh that is David's Lord? Who, who is he? That's Jesus' whole point, And the whole point only stands if Psalm 110 Psalm title is valid. So, and the fact that the Sadducees don't go, oh, you believe in the Psalm titles. They they, they're silenced. Again, gives us an insight into the fact that the Psalm titles are present and they're part of the text, they're part of the Word of God, and there's information in them. Like Jesus' entire argument to the, to the Sadducees depends upon the Psalm title of Psalm 110. Liz. Uh, yes, so I used to work with a gal who claimed to be a believer. I would, I, I still to this day, I'm not sure, but um, it just seemed like one thing after another, just terrible would happen to her mm. within months at a time. Yeah. Just all these bad things just piled up. She was sick, then her kids were sick, and her husband was sick, and then she lost this and lost all this money. And it was just like one bad thing after another. And I just, with her being, you know, telling me she was saved I had a hard time like encouraging her what would be for maybe someone who wasn't saved to when all these bad things just keep happening sure. and there's no I, I don't know how would you encourage someone that is going through just terrible things one after another that maybe isn't saved okay um, no and, and, and that how you would counsel someone in the midst of the whirlwind and how you'd prepare someone for the whirlwind, I think are two different things. Part of what I'm doing here is trying to prepare people for the whirlwind. I think Job's friends exposed some of their greatest wisdom when they just sat with their mouths shut. If I was dealing with someone who I wasn't sure was a believer and they had had a series of calamities, I would highlight a number of things. Um, I would highlight the... The, the biblical picture, I mean, and, and this is the challenge, right? The, there's many truths about our God. He's holy. He's just, he's, he's righteous. We saw he's going to march the earth in his fury. And he's like a mother hen who takes his young under his wing. He's gentle like a nursing mother. He, um, 
He's mindful of our frame that we are but dust. He does not willingly afflict the sons of men. He he gives good things. And when we ask for bread, he doesn't give us stones. And and, and basically, look, I don't know what God is doing. And I mean, there's a couple of subcategories of what he could be doing. I don't know what he's doing. But I know that he means to and is willing to comfort and strengthen you in this. Like, there's no promise of a full explanation. I mean, Habakkuk is a prophet. You and I are not necessarily prophets. And so Habakkuk gets an answer from God. But that answer from God is written down for us who don't get verbal answers from God. So we can learn from this. And there is a sense in which you got to trust me. I mean, again, it's striking that this book has the verse that proves justification by faith. But if we're like, okay, what type of faith then? It's the type of faith that can survive an onslaught of devastating loss and trust God. It's, it's, it's pretty significant faith. So if your friend is an unbeliever, it may be that God in his kindness is bringing them to see, no, they worship the creation rather. I'm not, these aren't things I'm speaking to you now. These are not things I necessarily say to them. It may be that God's slowly causing them to see you're my, I'm not your treasure. I'm not your hope and your, your God. The, these things are, it may be, that God is doing this to dry, draw them to him, to force them to, to give up and cast themselves upon him. All these other things that they might be tempted to put their hopes in. He's knocking them out one by one so that all that's left is him. Um, if your friend is a believer, there are a couple subsets there. Um, it could be discipline. I mean, we don't want to just assume that. That, of course, is Job's friend's assumption. It's the assumption of Jesus' disciples who sinned this man or his parents. But we do know God does discipline. The, the baby that was born to David died because of what he and Bathsheba did. So we know that. We know that in Psalm 32, David experienced physical wasting away. While I, while I did not confess, my bones wasted away. So we know that physical illness and those things can be the result of sin. So the first thought is, okay, could it be that God is de- dealing with some undealt with sin? We also know that sometimes the Lord simply does it for his own glory. The man born blind in John 9. Who sinned? God or I mean, his parents or this, this man? Neither. He was born blind so that years later he might be encounter the Son of God and give God glory. Now, I think this side of that, the bl- man born blind is satisfied with that answer. But for how many years till he met Jesus? I have no idea. I have no idea where you're born. I mean, imagine you're that guy's pastor. You're that guy's counselor. He's like, why did God make you born blind? Don't know. But I do believe he has good reasons and purposes. So sometimes it's simply to demonstrate his glory. And, and we have to trust him. The just live by faith. We have to trust him in that. Sometimes it's training us. Uh, maybe God is preparing you to minister to others. This is the lo- logic of 2 Corinthians 1. Um, we are comforted with God's comfort so that we can comfort others with the same comfort that we've received. God's, you're walking through a difficult time because God intends for you to minister to others who've walked through. The, and I'm not, this isn't even an exhaustive list of what God might be up to. So for a believer, uh, I would say consider some of those options and pray like a back. Lord, in the years in between, give me some understanding. Lord, I would love to have some inkling of what you're doing and why you're doing it. You don't have to answer me. But it would sure be nice if I could see some of what you're up to, some of what you're doing, um, and and pray that way. But God, in the suffering, God does promise and the 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 comfort, the strength, the hope. 
And if your friend's not experiencing that, then I'd urge them to press further in and lay hold of God by faith, whether that's savingly pressing further in or just re-establishing or renewing intimacy and fellowship. But the fact that the scriptures are given example after example after example after example of people going through difficult times and God showing himself faithful, that that's ultimately all I can say is, look, I can tell you, on the other side of this, when we see what God is up to, faith says, I'm willing to believe it'll be good. It'll be okay. It'll, it'll be, it'll, and it's not saying you've got to figure out on this side why or what. It's just, I believe it will. Now, there are enough examples in the Bible that I can trust God with that. I mean, so if you're Joseph and you're kidnapped and sold into slavery, and then in slavery, you're falsely accused of attempted rape and you're put in jail, what is God up to? Well, we know the end of the story. Like, I know. But good grief, how, how hard must it have been for Joseph not to curse God and die? And so stories like Joseph remind me, it can look really, really bad, and God can still be faithful and know what he's doing. Um, and there's Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So on the one hand, and part of what I've tried to say in the series of Habakkuk, hold on. This is going to be some seriously oversteep tea. Um, part of the vexation and the confusion and the I don't understand is fine. It's not a mark of unbelief. Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? It's what do you do in that, that that shows faith or unbelief. Faith says, though he slay me, yet I'll trust him. Faith says, yet I will wait quietly. Faith says, yet I will hope in him. I mean, that's what I'm going to try to do. That's faith's response to confusion and suffering and vexation. And unbelief says something else. So I just would press your friend to one of those types of responses and make it clear. The other thing I'm trying to make clear is, for the person who finds themselves utterly undone, you're not off the text, you're not off the pages, you're not in some out, you're not someplace outside the zone of scripture. The scripture envisioned and planned and prepared for many of God's people to be in such places. God has written to people in such places. You're not beyond the pale of, and that's that's some of the damage I think the sort of Ned Flanders approach to Christianity can be. Ned Flanders, don't watch The Simpsons, but if you've seen The Simpsons, Ned Flanders is their Christian. And no matter what happens, everything's just great. And it's a sort of shallow chipper. That's great. You could, you're, you know, your, your car could get run over. You're, you could lose your job and you'd be like, okie dokie. And that's not the biblical notion of joy. And that doesn't show any sense of the reality of suffering and grief. And so if people think what Christians do is they say, that's great, then they either try to fake that in some sort of shallow, half-hearted sense, or they think, well, that's not my life, so this isn't working for me. So there is joy. It's not the Christian life is just awful. The Christian life is the promise that all who desire to live godly will suffer, and in that suffering, we are comforted and strengthened by his grace. That's, 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 it's, it's, it's the, it's, Again, go to 2 Corinthians. This A friend of mine refers to 2 Corinthians 4 as the Magna Carta of the Christian faith, and I think it really is the balancing picture we need to present and understand. So what I would tell someone suffering is, if you're going to suffer, then you better be pressing on and calling God to be faithful to keep his end of the deal, which is to strengthen and encourage you in that suffering. I think the worst case scenario would be somebody in suffering who is because they're confused by the suffering and because they aren't sure they trust God, why would God let this happen? They're then 
not experiencing the uh, compassion, the help, the hope, because they're not like a child going to their father to understand, given they're just, and now they're getting the worst of both worlds. So what Paul envisions in 2 Corinthians um, is this, 2 Corinthians 4, um, verse 7 through the end of the chapter. For we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. For we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So notice it's both and. He's getting the strengthening, the renewing, the life, even as he's getting the crushing, the persecution, and the suffering. Um, since we have the same spirit of faith, so death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Now, same thing as Habakkuk. Ultimately, what makes you be able to live in the midst of the type of suffering Paul's in is having your eyes fixed firmly on heaven, your eyes fixed firmly on glory and the resurrection. For it is for all your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgivings to the glory of God. Back to suffering. So we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So one of the things you could say is, look, there's no guarantee that your outer self won't be wasting away. There is a promise, though, that he would renew you inwardly day by day as well. So I can't promise you that you're not going to get COVID. You're not going to get cancer. Your kid's not going to get hit by a car. I can't promise you those things. What I can promise you is in that wasting away process, there, God's promising there will be renewal day by day. So call on him to be faithful to keep that promise. The worst thing would be to have the outer self wasting away and no renewal. That'd be the worst case scenario, right? Um, now look at verse 17. One other thing you can try to give them some hope with. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What is the suffering of today doing in that verse? What's it doing? What's the verb? Preparing. Which means somehow there is a connection between the glory, the joy we will experience with Christ in heaven and the sufferings we have now. Our sufferings now are preparing like Jesus said, I go away to prepare a place for you. They're preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, which is I, I take comfort in. Therefore, your suffering is not meaningless. Some people try to get around suffering and even the world by saying God's a gentleman and he lets people do what they want. And we live in a fallen world. And so crap happens. That's not what Paul says. Paul says your suffering is doing something. It's preparing glory for you. Again, I would rather take hope in believing there's some meaning and purpose to my suffering than it's meaningless. God has nothing to do with it. Now, the scary part of that is, so God could have stopped it and God ordained it. Yep, yep. That's, that's the scary bit. And that's part of what Habakkuk got. He was like, yeah, I'm raising up Babylon and then I'm going to smash him down because I'm God. 
you know, but God promises his children that that suffering is working for them, preparing for them an eternal way to, it's productive. It's producing some heaven will be better because you suffered now. That's what that's saying. Yeah. For non-believer. I know a God who wants to comfort you in your affliction, who wants to strengthen you in your adversity, who sent his son, who knows what suffering is like in Jesus, who can stand with us in our infirmity, who in pleads with us, who wept over Lazarus's tomb. That's the God I know that I think you can find hope and help in. Biblically, it's the rich and the well-off who have a much harder time coming to Christ than those who are mistreated and suffering. So... God has gone on record. God has proven and demonstrated his um, identifying with us in our suffering. We have a crucified God that we worship, a suffering Savior who intercedes for us. And so I would just like, your, your God knows what suffering is like. He has suffered for you. And I'd love to introduce you to him. And he wants to strengthen you in it. Now, the downside is he's not saying he wants to make all the suffering go away. But again, that gets back to what you really want, what you really worship, is, is what I want. I want peace with God. I, mean, I remember, by God's grace, I remember that in the events where my dad died, shortly after I was a new believer, I just remember clarity. If I got to go through this, I don't want to go through with any distance between me and God. So, I mean, literally it's like, okay, God, how do you want me to respond to this? Because <laughs> I don't want to be facing on two fronts. I don't want the front of losing my father and the front of, I don't want to, I don't want to raise my fist and get mad at you. So what do you, and, and God was so good through that and so faithful through that that I, I, I from experience can testify. No, no, he, he is like a nursing mother, like a mother hen. He is, he is mindful of us and cares for us. And he does not give stones and scorpions to people who ask for, for bread and, and fish. And it doesn't say he gives bread and fish. He doesn't give stones and scorpions. Um, he's not mocking you in this. So th those types of things I would point to. I would point to, depending on how your person's struggling, I, I, is this the type of person, why would God let this happen? Why would God let this happen? Okay, why would God let it happen to his son? That, that really is the question. And if God did let it happen to his son, and if there's a good reason he let it happen to his son, mightn't he have a good reason for letting it happen to you? And mightn't you be willing to trust him with that? And of course... I don't want to minimize the real suffering. I, I talk to people who deal with just absolutely um, huge suffering. I don't want to minimize that. I'm just thankful the Bible deals with huge suffering too. It's not that the Bible just deals with, you know, the uh, the soccer mom sins. I'm anxious. Like no, there's just there's just completely um, there's complete undoing of people um, in in Scripture. And even there, God's good enough and sufficient enough. We can talk more afterwards, but that that would be my attempt to give a medium. I can't even say a short. That'd be a medium-sized answer. But <laughs> but uh, okay. Other questions, thoughts? Linda. You should have been named Lydia, Linda. You know that, right? You buy, oh, got it. Lydia sold purple. You nice, buy purple. Nice. That's right. Okay. That makes, 
The world makes sense now. Okay. 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 Go, Linda. Okay. So you were making the point about um, trusting God in calamity. Yeah. Um, so how far can we go with that, like in preparing for things that seem to be maybe headed our way? before we cross the line of now we're putting our trust in the things that we've, you know, sure. stored up and preparation versus we've not trusting in God anymore. We're trusting in that, you know, sure. um, I, I think, I think if I understand your question, how, how do we prepare without obsessing with the future and, and anxiety? I think most of us probably know the things that are nearest to our hearts. I remember when I first held my son in my arms and, I used to, when I'd rock Abner to sleep, I used to, uh, as part of my time praying, offer him up to the Lord, Lord, you gave him to me, you do me no wrong if you take him from me. And my primary motivation in that was I didn't want there to be any doubt on the question so that God didn't have to settle the matter. Does that make sense? Like, like, <laughs> and if that were to ever happen, childhood, I mean, we, we live in a day where childhood diseases don't do what they nearly what they did, but they still happen. I want to get the principle set right. Which is whatever, and do not think for a moment that if, if my, one of my children died and my wife died, I would not be wrecked. It's not, because God knows what he's doing, I'd be fine through that. It's in that outward devastation, I would hope and trust there would be inward strength and renewal. Let me, let me show you, so it's, it's, it's less dealing with every particular contingency. I'm just saying, identify those things that might most make you most shake. Identify those things that might most cause you to curse God and die and offer them up to the Lord. Lord, you, you do me no wrong. And in the day you take those from me, I'm committing now by your grace. I, I won't curse you. I'm going to trust you in that. That's more what I'm saying rather than imagine every possible bad scenario. That's, that's less what I'm saying. And it's just more, if you know those things that you, you treasure and value that are good things, you know, um, idols don't have to be bad things, but, but God settles the matter with Abraham. You love me or Isaac more. I'd rather not be tested like that, so I'd rather make it clear. <laughs> make it clear, um, and, and like I said, I, that's that's my attempt at trying to remind myself of these things. But let me let me show you. Go to Lamentations three. Um, go to Lamentations three, because there's another side to that as well to bear in mind, um, and this is where anxiety can really mess with us. I want to harmonize two passages, Lamentations 3 with Matthew 6. So if you can get your finger on both of them, Lamentations 3, Matthew 6. Matthew 6. Okay. In fact, I'll start with Matthew 6, 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So Jesus tells us not to endeavor to take the trouble of tomorrow upon ourselves today. Okay? Um, that doesn't mean don't plan. That doesn't mean don't make some realistic preparations. But it does mean guards against what you're saying, that, that excessive worrying about tomorrow. And the reason for that is back in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, 
The steadfast Lord, love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. God is constantly giving grace and mercy to us. And so today's trials have today's grace. And has anyone here read um, the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis? Um, he talks about this there. That I have no promise from God that he'll give me the grace today to deal with the imagined trials of tomorrow. So if I were to sit and really think, what would I do if my wife died in a car crash? I would have no reason to believe that God would give me the grace in this moment to bear that imagined burden. And so sometimes when we think of things like that, what would I do? What would I do if, you know, someone like in the first century came up to me with a gun and said, deny Christ or die? What would I do? Well, that day's grace and mercy would be a little different than today's grace and mercy. My confidence is the day that comes, his mercies and graces that are new every day, there would be a sufficient grace that day. My past experience has shown me that to be the case, that when the trials have come, grace has met me there. So, so don't try to bear tomorrow's burden with today's grace. Don't try to bear tomorrow's anxiety and trial with today's grace. I'm just saying commit that when these things get knocked out from me, if they get knocked out from me, here, I know right now that if tomorrow I got a diagnosis of cancer, the challenge and the battle for me is going to be to rejoice in God in that. But at least I know that's what I need to start trying to do. It's going to be hard work. I'm not saying that making the decision now to do it means it'll be easy then. I know what I need to do. I won't. I hopefully will save some time wondering, what do I do? I know what I need to do. The critical thing now is to find hope and joy in God, who he is to me, and his salvation. The critical thing is to not raise my fist up at him, but to trust him as a father. That's what I need to start fighting to do. That's what I need to get my friends around me to encourage me to do. That's what everything's going to depend upon. That's what saving faith does right? That's what I'm trying to settle. Unless pick the five worst things I can envision, because of course, something way worse I wouldn't even imagine could come, right? You know, um, so, so does that answer your question or, or you got more? Okay. Okay. Rowdy. Something that had never occurred to me that I, I uh, was watching uh, Steve Lawson give a lecture on the other day. Um, on the omnipotence of God, all-powerful. Um, he doesn't have to take your life away from you because he constantly gives life to you. You're not necessarily autonomous like a robot with a battery. You're more like plugged in with a extension cord. Right. No, no. And, 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 and that, that was something that I, I mean, I, I think I knew it in the back of my mind, but it, it never really struck home. And like you were saying, the, uh, you know, sufficient is the grace for today. It's like I'm plugged in and when tomorrow comes, that grace is going to come and I don't need to worry about it. Now it's easier said than done, obviously, but right. that just, that, that had never occurred to me. God doesn't take away from me. He just quits giving to right. me. Right. No, no. For I mean, This is the notion that against the deistic clockmaker, from him and through him, all things were made by him and all things continue to exist. All He upholds all Hebrews 1, 3. He upholds all things by the power of his word. I, Jeremy Kidder, continues to be 
because God is at this moment upholding me. It's not he made me and now I'll be until he steps in and unmakes me. I, I exist moment to moment. This table exists moment to moment. You all, you all exist moment to moment by God's active exertion of power. And so when he stops, when he withholds that power, he, he's not robbing you of anything. Um, he is he is using his prerogative. And, and that's not to say that when he withholds that power, there aren't terrible things that happen, <laughs> like droughts, famines, deaths, disease, passion. Sure. But he's he's not robbing anyone. He, he's not doing anyone any wrong. Oh, Rowdy wants to say some more. No, he I, he uh, he framed it in the context of the greatness and the smallness also mm-hmm. like he hung the world on nothing. Yeah. And so the entire universe exists outside of chaos by his power. And so something as small as a human being and him taking care of our lives, we shouldn't, that was another point that he made that, I mean, I, I should have known, but he, Kind of drove it home for me. Mm. There's a psalm that uh, highlights this. Hold on a sec. Um, send spirit. Psalm 104. God's upholding of the world. It's what you were just saying made me think of. Psalm 104. Um, Pick it up in verse, and the whole the whole psalm is celebrating God's creative activity. Um, I think he's referencing the flood in in five through nine. Let's pick it up in ten. Psalm one hundred four ten. You make springs gush forth in the valleys; they flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the hearts of men, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. He keeps going down listing all these things. Go to um, 27. These all look to you to give them their food in their due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. That's the idea. God's upholding and he's feeding and in the times he hides his face and he withholds. And that's one way of looking at the entire natural order of everything, whether stars and galaxies or aphids and ants. He's the upholder and sustainer of all of them. That's the basis for why not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from my father's will. The father hid his face from that sparrow, took back its breath. 
May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing of the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. We have about five minutes. Anything else? Or do you want to let go early? Oh, Timothy. I think we, your question, Linda, I think was like about kind of preparing or like stockpiling for the future and that kind of stuff. And well, prep, yeah, prepping, right? I mean, I think. <laughs> this is a sermon series. How to be a spiritual prepper. <laughs> How to be a spiritual prepper. Well, I mean, yeah, you are, you know, it's a just like. His mercies are new every day. I mean, our uh, continual fight to not have other gods before him. I mean, that, that could be dangerous today when you get something that wasn't planned and, you know, are you going to take it? And, and does that occupy a higher place in your heart than where God is or the thing that you save for six months from now? I'm depending, you know, you, you're just, I guess, at any moment you could be... Uh, uh, supplanting God's rightful position in your heart with other things. So if you're prepping and planning causes you to have faith in your your stockpile of ammunition and food and bunker and all those things or or whatever, you know, extra pills or whatever the things might be that you right. need, those, you know, if that's occupying that place in your heart, then that, that can be sinful. And, you know, but just like the model of like the sacrifices and stuff in the Old Testament, yeah, that was preparation for months and months and years and years into the future to have bulls and ox and different things to, yeah. I mean, there, there would have been planning and all kinds of preparations that were related to, you know, this is going to keep my family alive, but along the way I'm giving up, you know, I'm doing this also, there's this model of, of this is God's stuff, you know, this is his thing. So if I'm prepping today for something for six months from now, that may be responsible. And if, if it's called upon me to to give that over to sacrifice that, you know, if that's what God wants me to do with the things that I've prepared. I mean, you've talked about this, I think, in recent weeks yeah. that my abundance in the future might be yeah. for someone else's yeah. lacking. I mean, so there's just I, I think we're in danger, you know, this afternoon when you walk across the street and you find a hundred dollar bill that could be just as supplanting of God's preeminence in your life as if you are stockpiling hundred dollar bills for for the, you know, fall of 2024 or whatever we're all in for you know <laughs> so right you know what i mean yeah 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 that's a that's a half tank of gas or a half a gallon of gas anyway i i don't know but from what because i kind of struggle with that too it's like i want to plan we've got a house that we bought that we're remodeling and i'm always thinking what are we going to do and how are we going to do this and when is it going to come to fruition and then you realize, you know, you've always got to be ready to give that house away or, or lose that house. I mean, that certainly can't occupy too high a position, even though it, it seems to occupy a lot of your mortal time and energy. Yeah, where's your heart? And that, that's a question for every moment of every day. So, um, I don't know if that kind of was helpful. Well, I will uh, dismiss you all. Thank you. Have a good day, and I'll look forward to seeing you all next week.